You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Gravity Leadership is a community of people seeking to live our lives in the orienting center of God's love in the midst of our post-Christian world, learning to lead like Jesus, live on mission, and make disciples. In nature, gravity is the phenomenon that brings stuff together, objects as small as atoms and quarks and as large as stars and galaxies. We believe the gravity of the Christian life is the love of God revealed in Jesus Christ. The Gravity Leadership Podcast is curated conversations on what it looks like to practically orient our lives and our leadership in the love of Christ, the gravity that holds everything together. Hey friends, uh, this is Ben. Uh, Welcome to another episode of the Gravity Leadership Podcast. I'm here with my friend Matt. I'm here. And uh, today on the podcast, we are going to have a conversation with Austin Fisher. Austin is the lead pastor at Vista Community Church in Temple, Texas, and he is the author of a new book called Faith in the Shadows, Finding Christ in the Midst of Doubt. It's good to have you, Austin. Thanks so much for having me, guys. I've enjoyed what you're doing from a distance, and so it's nice to kind of jump in. Awesome. Good. Can I ask the first question? Yeah, go ahead. Where is Temple, Texas? Yeah. Well, the thriving metropolis of Temple, Texas is located approximately halfway in between Austin and Waco in Central Texas. Austin and Waco, Central Texas. Yep. That's kind of... How many people is in Temple? Or in Temple? So Temple, Temple, Belt, and Clean, they're three cities kind of all together. Um, And all of them together is about 300, probably 1,000. Okay, it's kind of a, a little uh, metropolitan area there. Not exactly rural. Mm-hmm. R- that's rural. One of, that's not, my not top rural, ten. Rural, rural, rural. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, we wanted to have a, a conversation about um, some of the stuff you wrote about in your book, Austin, um, because it intersects quite a bit with our work. Um, we've talked uh, previous episode about finding God in our doubts and uh, in our dark places. Um, and your book is kind of about that. Your book is about um, how, where we find God 
uh, in the midst of those uh, doubts that we may have. Um, but I, I'm curious about why you wrote this book. I'm curious about what your what it was about your experience of doubt uh, that made you uh, realize that this book needed to be written, um, or maybe that you know you realized, man, I I need I need this book <laughs> for my yeah, own experiences. No, that, of doubt. That's a huge part of it when you write a book. Is typically it's. It's such a labor to write that you usually only do it if you feel like it's something you have to do. And mm. so when I kind of went through a a pretty difficult journey with with doubt where I really didn't know if I could believe in God anymore at a certain point, um, just realized that I, as a, as a pastor, have all these tools and training to be able to process stuff like this or so you would think. And yet I really, really struggled. And again, I didn't really know where to turn when I was in the midst of it. And so when I kind of got through it, um, just thought that, man, there are a lot of people who don't have a lot of the resources and training that I've been given as a quote unquote professional to deal with this. And so it'd be really, really helpful for average folks to have something like this to be able to use as a kind of, you know, it's not a guidebook, but it's more of a, oh, here's someone who dealt with doubt, Mm. um, who almost walked away from their faith because of it and yet still found a way to believe at the end of things because Mm -hmm. of it. And so that's what the book was meant to be a guidebook for how to doubt faithfully. Yeah. Hmm. And what struck me about that is I think there's two dominant imaginations we have in sort of contemporary Christianity about what to do with doubt. One is we fight it, right? We get, we get our evidence that demands a verdict and we just uh, machine gun all our doubts. Someone should call a book that or something. Well, Yeah. You a whole, should, a be whole your... series of products, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, or or we kind of escape our doubt, right? So we kind of yeah. use Sunday worship as an opiate to to numb the gnawing doubt or the aching darkness we're feeling. But you have mm. you have a different way of dealing with doubt in this book that I think is really helpful. I mean, you do give some information, um, but uh, you reframe the way we should uh, approach or posture our doubt. Can you talk? about how that, how you discovered that and what that looks like. Yeah, I think you've laid out the two typical options pretty clearly. And one of them is, you know, when, you, when you've got doubts, you just shove them down deep in the basement of your heart, hoping that they'll suffocate from the inattention, you know, and just magically <laughs> go away. Yeah. And again, in my experience, um, the people who walk away from their faith aren't the people who had doubts. Uh, it was the people who had doubts and were afraid to be honest about them until it was too late. Yeah. And so that's what I, you know, try, try to help people understand is if you try to ignore your doubts, uh, your doubts just grow stronger and they know, they know that you're not playing honest. They know that you're not playing fair. And so they just grow more monstrous when you hide from them. Um, the second option is this sort of, um, it, it's usually when we think of rationalism, you think of like, you know, a scientifically minded atheist or something like that. But I have encountered um, super conservative fundamentalists, probably even more than conservative Christians who are every bit the rationalists yep. who mm-hmm. think that if we just approach, you know, scripture and the historical evidence with a, an open mind, then you'd have to be a complete idiot to not be a Christian. Right. And that's just not the case, you know, and, and it, it, you know, any, anyway, so rationalists come on kind of both sides of the equation there. And so the kind of route that I walked was really one that I think you find typified most in the book of Job, right? And most people are familiar with Job, but they're not as familiar as they think they are with it, right? So Job loses everything in chapters one and two. He says all the right things, ends chapter two in this spot of like humble piety. The Lord gave, the Lord's taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And most people stop reading Job there, right? Mm-hmm. And the next 36, 38 chapters are Job just losing, I mean, losing his mind 
and letting God have it, verbally assaulting God, really. I mean, bordering on heresy at multiple different places. Mm. At the end, God shows up in the whirlwind. Obviously, he puts Job in his place. Where were you when I created the stars? Do you know where the mountain goats give birth? You know, all that. But the do, book ends do in you, chapter 42. Austin, do, you, yeah. do you know where the mountain goats give birth? I do not. Okay. I would assume on the mountains, but <laughs> I always felt like that was an <laughs> Is easy. Is this a trick question, God? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The mountain. Keep going, God. Your overall point's good, but I got you there. Yeah, you had me on the stars, but mountain goats. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's difficult. Um, anyways, in chapter forty-two, you know, God says, "Job, you, the guy who verbally assaulted me for like thirty-six chapters, you spoke rightly of me, but your friends, the three friends who told you to praise God, don't doubt, get over it, um, they spoke wrongly of me." And my wrath is kindled against them. And in fact, Job, I'm going to need you to offer sacrifices for them so I don't smoke them and give them what they deserve. So in, you know, how in the world has Job, who said all these terrible things about God, yeah. some of which God has kind of you know, repudiated, spoken rightly of God? Yeah. And I think the best explanation we can come up with is that Job spoke rightly in the sense that he had the courage to speak honestly, even when he didn't have anything nice to say. And so Job is this kind of paradigm for what it looks like to deal with our doubt faithfully. Job kept the conversation going with God, even when he didn't have anything nice to say. And yes, he got put in his place, but he also encountered the living God in the whirlwind. Right. Yeah. yeah so yeah. it sounds like then um, the impression I'm getting, even for Job and perhaps for us on this podcast and the people listening is that doubt can be a tutor that disabuses us of a certitude that masquerades for faith. Yeah. Right. I think that's a great way to say it. Yeah. Doubt properly handled can push us toward God instead of away from God. And that's always been the case. Yeah. 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 I think the contrast there that's fascinating to me is uh, you've said this phrase a couple times, faithfully experiencing our doubt. And I think the reason people are so afraid of experiencing doubt is because they, they like, that word faithfully and doubt feel like opposites to them, right? Yeah. Because we have, like you said, Matt, because we have equated our faith with certainty. So we know we're being faithful if we're certain about things, mm-hmm. and any, like, niggling doubts are evidence that we're not faithful. And so we can't we can't verbalize those things. That's a, It's almost like a slippery slope kind of argument. Uh, oh, sure. That. When you think of your faith as something that <clears throat> you have to be certain in, with mathematical certainty, you know, right. um, or else it doesn't count as faith, then, then yeah, there's only one thing to do with your doubts, and that's to push them away and not think about them, because any sort of exploring your doubts is probably going to mean you're not as certain, certainly not while you're processing them. And so that's where I think a lot of us have been set up to fail. That's where I was set up to fail is Hmm. when you think that you have to be certain in order to have real vibrant faith, then sooner or later uh, you figure out you can't be certain. Hmm. And so you have to ask yourself if you can still have faith. And a lot of people think they can't and and they walk away. Yeah. And so, and so this is the, this is the shift. This is the, the journey, Austin. I'm curious if you have some wisdom for us about it. Because it seems like often what we try to do, you know, using the metaphor of like container and contents, right? So I'm drinking some coffee this morning and I've got my little mug and I've got some coffee in it, right? What we typically do is we, we focus on the coffee in the mug, right? And what you're describing is we're recreating the container to hold the coffee, mm-hmm. right? So we're, we're changing the frame or the way that we conceive of and hold our faith. That seems to be much more difficult, than just giving people some fighter verses to beat back the doubt. Absolutely. I mean, and that's what the book is is about. Like, there are a few specific issues I, I tackle and mm-hmm. 
try to offer some helpful content. But on the right. whole, the book itself is kind of um, an exercise in showing what it looks like to doubt faithfully, which I do think, again, at the end of the day is more important than having the right answers because there's, there will always be new doubts for us. I mean, wh- what are our kids going to deal with, right? Like what's right. going to happen when we discover the aliens or whatever it is? Like, or the AI singularity. There's no yeah, yeah there's, <laughs> there's no end to the doubts that will come up. And so if we just give people answers, that's not really going to do much good for long. we got to teach people how to process their doubts. We've got to teach people how to think and not what to think would be the obvious kind of thing to mm-hmm. say here. Yeah. Yeah. What – um. So uh, I think one, one aspect of this that's interesting for me, and I think for our, for our listeners as well, is, you know, maybe a lot of us have experienced doubt, like you've been talking about that, and I, I know I have, and, you know, it's been helpful for me to reframe this. So, so we as leaders uh, experience doubt, and we've got to figure out how to, you know, hold it in a new container and all of that kind of stuff. Um, but do you have any wisdom, like you're a pastor, you lead a church, uh, in Temple, Texas. And so, like, how do we help others into this kind of new framing um, when they're experiencing their doubt? How do we create an atmosphere that's hospitable to doubt in our yeah. churches, in our in our ministries, in our in our just our daily lives? How can we become people who are receptive to the doubts of others? You know? Yeah, I think a number of things you could say there, and it, it obviously depends on your particular context. But in, in my context, my church is, you know, um, <clears throat> most folks would still probably identify as evangelical with an asterisk and a lot of footnotes. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. So, like, I, I, our folks, in order to believe that their doubts are something that can actually push them toward God, not away from God, they need to know that it's biblical, and, and they need to know that there's a, a kind of a a history of it in the church tradition. And so mm. one of the things that I always do, it's the story I tell in the first chapter of the book is comes from Matthew 28. It's the great commission. The 11 apostles <clears throat> uh, go up on this mountain. They see the resurrected Christ. Okay. And we're told that when they saw him, they worshiped him, but they still doubted. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. The resurrected Christ. Now, most of us think, man, you know, if I could just see the resurrected Jesus, I really wouldn't need any more proof for the rest of my life. Like, that would be fine. I'd be good. And yet these 11 apostles saw the resurrected Christ, and somehow they still doubted. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if, if, if that's possible, right? Well, like if the apostles could see the resurrected Christ still doubt, and Jesus could still use them to build the church, then surely yeah. Jesus could use us in the midst of our doubts to live out, you know, faithful lives yeah. in the midst of a broken world. Yeah. yeah, and in fact, it's not just they they worship and doubt, but it's they doubt and are commissioned in the midst of their doubts. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, right. Jesus doesn't say, "Hey, I'm gonna need you to hang up here on the mountain until you got it all figured out. Certainly, then I'll send you out." It's like, no, you're worshiping and you're doubting. That's good enough. I'm gonna send you out. You're gonna change the book. Yeah, and yeah. then even more amazing yeah. to me is that you know in Acts one we see, you know, this dialogue with the angel, and it's clear that even their their content. Like, hey, was this? Are you gonna? Are you gonna do? Are you gonna now make Israel great again? The, yeah, you know, yeah. is this yeah. it? And the yeah. angel's like, no, 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 no. Just, just to clarify, right? Yeah. right, right. But, but he, that's you know, not what's happening. You know, he kind of just what I want you to. Do. He yeah. just clap tweets him and yeah. tells him to go back to you know Jerusalem, right? And so, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, yeah, man, I, I think I think we have such a, you know, and you could keep going here with this, right? You can keep going with all the missionaries Jesus sends out mm-hmm. in, in the Gospels, you know. Uh, the Samaritan woman and her heterodox theology, the Gadarene demoniac and his no theology, you know mm-hmm. all these all these missionaries who who don't meet sort of the seminary 
uh, denominational test for what it looks like to be faithful, but who carry faith in their encounter with Christ in the midst of unanswered questions, perhaps, or even, you know, cloudy, how does this all fit together? Mm. Yeah, well, even, you know, Jesus himself, you know. Uh, oh, here we go. Come in on. the garden, in the garden, on the cross. Oh, yeah. I, you know, we can explain it in different ways, but I don't think we can explain a way that there seems to be some sort of doubt that Jesus is harboring, which again, we shouldn't really surprise us. Jesus was fully human. Right. Um, and so Jesus knows what it's like to walk around with doubts. And yet Jesus still does the most profound, important act in the history of the world while doubting in the midst mm -hmm. of doubting. So it's absolutely foolish to think we have to choose between faith and doubt or that faith has to include certainty when even Jesus, uh, yeah. I don't know. I don't know if we would say Jesus was certain. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, uh, so part of it is like showing people the biblical record and say, this is like, this is our faith. Our faith mm -hmm. is like wrestling with God and shouting yeah, at God. Israel. And, you know, mm -hmm. that this is the whole thing. Um, I'm, I'm curious as to, I'm thinking of, um, you know, just churches I've been part of or, you know, sat in worship services with. And I'm thinking the subtle ways that we can, indicate to people so this is the other side of the question like how do we create a, an atmosphere that's hospitable to doubt i think one thing is like you said like let's make sure they understand this is fine but like there are subtle ways that we can create an atmosphere that's hostile mm -hmm. to people being honest about their doubts right um i'm thinking of the you know just the, the some of the ways that we can phrase our you know sermons you know mm -hmm. like or the ways that we talk about the bible or the ways that we yep. talk about our faith that kind of yep. thing. I, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Like, what are what are some ways that we inadvertently create a culture, create an atmosphere where people don't feel safe to own their doubts? That's a great question. Um, so, I, I think one of the obvious things is this is a leadership podcast, but mm -hmm. um, it really is something where your your people will take a cue from you. And mm -hmm. so, if your people get a sense that like. While you talk a little bit about doubt, A, you don't really know what it's like to actually doubt. And that's mm. the way I always felt about most books on apologetics I read is that they're written by people who don't really know what it's like to doubt. Yes. <laughs> you yes. know, so um, yeah. if your people see that you're not really willing to entertain doubts or be honest about them, then of course they're going to pick up on the fact that they shouldn't be. Because if their leader, their pastor is not willing to do it, they're not going to. And so mm. I think that's a huge one is to learn. And again, it's not, you know, spiritual exhibitionism. You don't need to get up there and just vomit every doubt you've ever had, but um, it is important for you to demonstrate to your people what it looks like to have an honest faith and an honest faith includes doubts. And so that means things like you don't tie every single sermon up with a perfect bow. You know, mm -hmm. you, you leave loose ends at places because life is full of loose ends. Yeah. Um, and I think when you mirror that and you create space for that, and again, you can build things into your liturgy where you express your doubts as a community and then you don't immediately follow it up with, but here are the obvious answers to all these doubts and that's why they shouldn't bother us. Right. You got to let people sit with them a little bit. Yeah. Um, again, when it becomes normative in worship, um, that's one obvious way that it becomes more natural in our lives. And then also mm. obviously w whatever community looks like for you, like we do small groups. And so, um, it's something we continually teach our small group leaders that when people are, are honest enough to really open up about their doubts, don't feel like you have some responsibility to, again, shut it down and explain it away immediately because, oh my God, what if people in the group walked away thinking there are legitimate reasons to doubt their faith? No, you, you got to create right. a space where people can hold their doubts with some tension, find hope for them, sure, but 
people need to feel like the church is the first place they run to when they have their doubts, not the last place. Mm. And unfortunately, yeah. that's not the culture we've created a lot of time. Yeah. So so I'm I'm hearing in that is like there's something important about the way that we if somebody actually confesses a doubt to us at, like personally in a conversation there's something important about the way that we receive it if we mm-hmm. if we jump to and I I'm thinking of like early ministry experiences when I when I would have conversations with people and they would express some sort of doubt like about about something and there would be an anxiety in me that would rise up to basically like oh like seal this up, like mm-hmm. give them the answer. If you don't know the answer, look it up, you yeah. know, make sure that they have an, you know, and I think that the way that people receive that then, right, is like, oh, okay, well, it's not okay to have that doubt yep. uh, because there's some answer for it. But, you know, I was, I was always frustrated that the answer never really did the work I, would hope it, I was hoping it would <laughs> do. Like that's not yeah. actually what people need when they're doubting. Uh, they don't need the answer. Nope. Um, the answer, you know, if there is an explanation or something like that, I think it only becomes helpful after we've learned this new way of holding our doubts. You know, the I think that's very, very well said. Yeah, yeah. 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 You you have a story in your book about uh, dealing with hell, about mm. this woman who comes to you and and says, you know, I think I believe in hell, but I'm I'm really not okay with it. And and the the entire chapter is basically you having this dialogue with this woman, and she leaves saying the same thing she came saying. But, be- yeah. but because you were present to her and reflecting back and, and like basically giving her through the hospitality of receiving and welcoming her doubts without anxiety or mm-hmm. fear, right, or danger, yeah. that sh- you just, you kind of situated her question within a larger framework of faith <clears throat> rather yeah. than rather than this antagonism of question versus faith. It was question mm-hmm. and faith. Right. And we're, that, do, we're doing faith right now as you ask your question. Right, but I think that's mediated through, not through tutors, but through fathers. Like you said, Austin, we don't need people to tell us what to do with our doubts. We need people who have experienced doubts, who can walk with us through that, and who, who don't just have theory and abstractions, yeah. but mm-hmm. have stories yeah. and, like, travel logs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, it's... Again, when you do a lot of counseling as a pastor, y'all have probably done plenty of counseling. And yeah, you figure out pretty quick that you could solve somebody's problem. Right. But there's always going to be another problem, you know. In a marriage, you can give them a couple of helpful pieces of advice. But at the end of the day, what they most need to do is learn how to relate to their spouse in a healthy way. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's the same thing when it comes to doubts. Like you said, it's creating a hospitable space where people go, oh, this is what it looks like to process my doubts honestly. Mm-hmm. And this is something that I really can do. You know, when, yeah. when Thomas is, is frustrated and, you know, all the other apostles got to see Jesus and Thomas is like, yeah, you know, don't know about it. Seems too good to be true. What does Jesus do? He says, hey, here are the holes in my hands and my side. Mm-hmm. You know, Jesus yeah. meets Thomas where Thomas is, yeah. um, even though Thomas gets a bad rap. Um, and I think that's kind of the role that we're called to play is we meet people where they are. We allow them to put their fingers in the holes, you know, of our explanations and go, they're not perfect, but this is what it looks like to process hmm. these things. And most importantly, you're not crazy. Like the saints throughout history right. uh, have struggled with the faith. Yeah. You're not defective. There's nothing wrong. There's nothing inherently sort of shamefully wrong with you that you're asking this question. It's really important mm-hmm. for people to hear that. Yeah, and I would well, and for people to know that, like, I think one of the misconceptions about doubt or crisis of faith is that it's something people went looking for. 
you know, like they, <laughs> right. they right. wanted to just do their own thing and weren't asking too many questions or exploring yeah. too many taboos or they read the Harry Potter books. or <laughs> Listen to secular there. music. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's just not the case, man. Like yeah. for most people, a crisis of faith is the most miserable experience you can imagine. Yeah. It, it really is. It's the most miserable thing you can imagine. And it's not something they weren't yeah. looking for. They didn't want to leave their faith. Their faith wanted to leave them, and, and that's what it felt like. Yes, and you know, one of the one of the main provokers of doubt is where people's understanding of God meets a reality that doesn't comport with it, right? And right. so one one of one of the ways that we confront that is just evil, right? It's just evil, uh, evil in the world, um, and oh. so. Uh, Evil, like I'm trying to understand what you're saying. Theodicy. What so people, people, uh, oh, okay. people pray for a the baby. Problem evil. They have the a baby, evil. right? They have that a baby, and uh, the baby has a birth defect and dies, mm-hmm. right? And so uh, there's there's ways that we kind of navigate around tragedy mm-hmm. that I think eliminate the possibility of us growing through doubt. Yeah. So we so we say, well, you know, God just needed another angel in heaven. That's why, right? Or uh, if my baby didn't die then God's glory would somehow be diminished. And so mm-hmm. I need this baby's death in order for God to be glorified. Or yep. God has a, This is a ball part of God's perfect plan. And yep. I, you talk about this in your book, Austin. I know you've written other books about, you know, this used to be sort of part of your, this, these phrases were part of your repertoire, your theological repertoire. Yep. Mm-hmm. I, think, uh, I think part of the work they do is they duct tape the cracks of our theology like to keep doubt out. Like, we just mm-hmm. can't question any of this happening, mm-hmm. because if God is not meticulously ordaining and in control of everything that happens, then it's all a crapshoot, and who knows what's going to happen, and it's all chaos. Those are the only yeah. options Those we the, can see. Right. right. And yeah. so, um, for some of our listeners who maybe, like most of us grew up with those messages, right? What's, what's an alternative way of handling the things that provoke doubt, in particular, like the evil that we can't mm-hmm. reckon with or explain? Yeah, so I have a couple chapters on evil in the book, and um, one of the things I I mention is that if 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 evil doesn't cause a crisis of faith or something close to one for you at some point, then it's probably because you have too little faith and not too much faith. Um, hmm. The relentless pitiless suffering of the world, which all of us know just a little bitty sliver of, you know, because yeah. we live in the sheltering constraints of this tiny little space and time. <clears throat> if we were to all be faced with the full suffering of creation, I, I really do wonder if any of us would still be able to believe. Mm. I, I just, I, I do. I mean, we know so little of it. Um, and so when, when that hits and you have a crisis of faith, I like to remind people that that's actually an expression of faith. Because if you didn't have faith in a God of infinite goodness and kindness, then evil wouldn't be a problem for yes. you. Yes. Right. You know? No yes. big deal. And so yeah. there's this direct correlation between how beautiful and kind and compassionate we think Jesus is yeah. um, and how horrific the world's suffering appears to us. And so the more beautiful that we understand Jesus really is and the promises of Christianity really are, uh, the more of a problem evil becomes. Hmm. And so evil should cause a crisis of faith. For you, And if it doesn't, it means you don't understand how beautiful the promises of Christianity are. And so when it comes to how we sort through it, you know, um, <clears throat> I think the best basic bottom line answer is the classic answer of free will. Um, but even that has enormous holes in it that I can't even begin to answer. And 
I think it was Moltmann who said at the end of the day, uh, eschatology is really the only credible theodicy, which is just another way to say the only real explanation for suffering or justification of it is the belief that God will make all things right in the end. And that's all we can really say. Like, what else can we say when a a baby dies? Mm -hmm. I I don't have any answer for that. The only answer I have is that God will make it right one day. Resurrection is the only answer we have to the problem of evil. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, what uh, just to press that a little more because um for for some of us Austin, if I can't trust that God um wasn't in control of that baby's death, then I can't trust God. Like, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? And so uh how do I how do I then understand a God a God who is powerful in the midst of evil that seems to happen contrary to who he is? Yeah, so Roger Olson's one of my mentors, and Roger talks a lot about the distinction and saying that God is in control and saying that God is in charge. And so, and this is, I know y'all, uh, <clears throat> I think, connect with Greg Boyd a lot. This is a similar mm-hmm. thing to what Greg yeah. would say is that God's in charge. You know, God's as sovereign as God wants to be. And yet, God has chosen to create a world um, where love is a real possibility. Love requires freedom, freedom requires the possibility of evil. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, um, God has chosen to not be as in control as God could be because there are other things that God wanted more than being in control, namely mm. love. And so I, I understand the, the, the struggle going, well, you know what? Um, if God wasn't in control of my child's death, then whatever, I can't find peace. But, but you just really have to turn that over and see the other side of that coin, which is, do you really want to believe in a God who needs to you know, ordain the death of children in order to be glorified? I mean, is that is that really the God of Christian faith, a God who needs evil in order to be glorified? Um, I think on a number of levels, philosophically and theologically, that falls apart pretty quick because then you end up with a God who needs creation in order to fully actualize God's self or fully display mm. God's glory because how does God display his wrath or justice if there's not something <laughs> other than God in the world? You know, is yeah. the, the Father going to, be wrathful toward the son for being perfect. You know, no, God needs to create in order to display God's glory. (laughs) Yeah, which again means God needs something, which is basically denying most all the orthodox tenets about who God is. God Mm -hmm. is absolutely unnecessary, uncontingent, doesn't need anything to fulfill himself, does not need creation. Creation is an act of grace. And so I think you end up going down for our Mm -hmm. friends who love the slippery slope. Come on. Busted uh, out. Free slope. Here we go. You end up <laughs> denying the God of Orthodox Christianity if you think God needs suffering and evil to fully glorify Himself. Yeah, mm. this is this is what part of our project at Gravity Austin is. We've we've kind of inherited that God equals power equals control kind of framework, and mm-hmm. what we see modeled in Jesus is God equals power equals love. And and there's where if you start with control or you start with love, you end up in divergent places about who God is, mm. what what freedom means, um, where evil situates, and all that. And I think that our imagination for how to live a spirituality that's centered in love is so anemic. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I appreciated about your book is that it provokes, it actually does some architecture for us on mm-hmm. how to how to how to begin to inhabit a different imaginary. For, for what it looks like to live a spirituality that's rooted and grounded in God's love. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I really appreciated it, man. Um, yeah. Really important to me. Yeah. Yeah, totally. It's a great book. Um, as, we, as we close here, 
Austin, I want to ask you about a couple phrases um, that I want that that I loved. I love these phrases, and I want you just to explain them real quick. All right? Yeah. Uh, it's better to be wrong about Jesus than right about something else. What do you mean by that? Yeah. So, so that's one of the phrases I've been questioned about the most. Um, and so that comes in the the context of. Wait, say it again. Say it again. So it here, was... Here's the phrase: It's better yeah. to be wrong about Jesus than right about something else. Okay. Yeah. So um, when I was, I mean, really in the throes of my doubt and, and got to this place where <clears throat> I told myself I didn't believe in God anymore. I don't know if I meant it. I don't know if I honestly, as a Western person, would even know what it means to not believe in God. I almost think the idea <laughs> of God is too ingrained in yeah. the way we've been conditioned to really deny God, but that's another combo for another day. I didn't know if I believed in God anymore. Yeah. And I knew that certainty wasn't in the cards for me. And, and none of the arguments, historical, philosophical, uh, experiential, were ever going to be able to tip the scale decisively for me in the place I was at. And so it was like, well, what are you, <laughs> you going to do? And came to this place where I realized that... Um, even if Christianity proved in the end to be false, I would still rather spend this very brief life that I've been given following Jesus because I think a life spent following Jesus is the most beautiful way to spend my life, even if Christianity is not the truth. Um, and so in that sense, it's kind of a reverse Pascal's wage. If you're mm. familiar with Pascal's wage, it was kind of right. this idea that, hey, you know, if, if Christianity proves to be false and you ended up being a Christian, then there's, you know, you haven't really lost anything. Maybe you would have, I don't know, slept with more people and made more money or something, but whatever, not that big of a deal. Yeah. Uh, but if Christianity proves to be true and you weren't a Christian, then there might be hell to pay, you know, on yeah. the other side. Yeah. Um, and so this is just kind of inverting right. that and saying, right. even if Christianity proved to be false, you'd still be uh, best served following Jesus with this one brief life you've been given because it's the most beautiful way to live your life. And so at the end of the day, uh, I'd rather be wrong about Jesus than I would be right about anything else. I like it. Very good. Here's the other phrase uh, I want you to just comment on briefly. Uh, the goal of Christianity is not faith, but love. Yeah. So um, Paul there, you know, in 1 Corinthians 13, yeah, 13, mm -hmm. says, you know, these are kind of the three greatest virtues or acts or postures that as a Christian you want to abide in. Um, sorry, there's a fly flying in my face. Um, <laughs> faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love, which we've heard that verse a million times. But when you let it settle a little bit, I really do think that most of us think the goal of following Jesus is faith. The thing Jesus wants most from us is faith. And yet Paul has said it real clear. Um, and when Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was, he didn't say it's to have faith so as to move mountains. He said it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart and love mm -hmm. the person in front of you. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I think it's a subtle little shift there in realizing mm -hmm. that the goal of this journey that Jesus has me on is that I would become a person who loves God, loves self, and loves the person in front of me, not that I would become a person of indestructible faith. Um, the reason I think that's important in the context of doubt is one of the worst ways to strengthen your faith is to aim at strengthening your faith. Um, it's <laughs> yeah. kind of like happiness in that sense. Like if you aim at trying to be a happy person, you're not going to be happy. Right. But if you aim at living a beautiful, meaningful life spent in service to others, you're probably going to end up happy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So right. in the same way, I think faith is something we find when we come to it indirectly. And yeah. so I think the thing that we aim at in our lives is love. And when we love, right, when we pour ourselves out in love, spend our entire lives loving the person in front of us, loving self, loving God, 
I think we end up with faith and more faith than we would have expected, mm. right? Because love creates faith just as much as faith creates love. And so when you get caught up there and you're, you know, playing that weird psychological game where you're trying to convince yourself you're certain of things that right. you just can't be certain of. And A, it seems strange that God would ask us to convince ourselves. Stop trying to convince yourself. <laughs> get up off your butt and go love somebody. And you'll usually find that through a lifetime of doing that, uh, you had way more faith than you would have ever expected mm. because love creates faith. And faith at the end of the day is just a posture that makes us more able to receive love. It's not an end in itself. No. Yeah. Amen. Beautifully stated. Strike up the organ. Yep. Take up an let's, offering. Let's take up an offering. I'd love I, to. I feel Send like your checks a, to yeah. Gravity. <laughs> gravity <Yeah>. leadership. <laughs> right, right. No, we, yeah. We, Vista Community Church. We right. do need a benediction, though, to leave this call after that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, for sure. Let's let's Matt. I want you to do the benediction. All right, okay. Man. Um, but I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna tell people you guys can pick up uh, Faith in the Shadows. Uh, any anywhere that books are sold. Is yep. it in airports? You got you got it in airports. <laughs> you know, I don't know if there are any listeners out there who have found it in an airport. Right. You know, yeah. Shoot me a picture on Instagram. Yes. Or, yes yeah. Very good. Next so time you can, I fly, I'll leave my copy in the seat back. Yeah, that's another way. There to do you it. go. That that will get it into an airport. Um, so yeah, faith in the shadows. It talks about this posture, but it also does give some really helpful um, reframings of several things that people do oftentimes have doubts about, like evil, suffering, unanswered prayer, whether or not Genesis and Revelation are literal, science and evolution, hell, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, you can find Austin online at purpletheology.com. Do I have that right? Or just austinfisher.com. They, Austin they link Fisher. to the same okay. place. Mm-hmm. Austin Fisher. Or you can find Austin on Twitter at Austin T. Fisher. That's F-I-S-H. No, F-I-S-C-H-E-R. The C yep. silent. The Good C German silent. heritage. We kept Fisher. the C. Fisher. Mm. All right. Uh, that's Thanks, about Austin. it for us. Thanks yeah. for being with us, man. This is yeah. great. Absolutely. It was a pleasure. Let's not wait 33 years next time. All right. <laughs> yeah, that's good. We'll run it back. Okay, friends, may you uh, go today knowing that God's love is stronger than your fear, that he is not as scared of your doubt as you are, that he welcomes you uh, in the way you can conceive of him now, and he brings you closer to him as you are honest about where you really are. So go trusting love not in your own conceptions. Go trusting Jesus, not in all the right answers. And go today to love and serve the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Thanks and, be to God. And thanks be to Austin. Thanks for, <laughs> thanks for being with us. <laughs> Anytime, guys. Thank you. All right. Peace. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Gravity Leadership Podcast. If you found it helpful, please let us know by leaving a rating or review on iTunes or wherever you review podcasts. You can also email us at podcast at gravityleadership.com to ask a question, suggest a topic for future episodes. And join our online community for free at gravityleadership.com slash join. You'll get our latest content delivered straight to your inbox, as well as an email most Fridays with curated links to articles we found interesting or helpful throughout the week. To join us, go to gravityleadership.com slash join.
You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. You just take your shot. It doesn't feel like you're on a diet. What I wasn't expecting it to do was to shut off the food noise. This was life-altering, and if I can do it, I feel like anybody can do it. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com.